Luke chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Luke 5, verse 1 to 11, and the theme for this morning's sermon, Fishing for Jesus. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bring praise and glory to you. We adore you as the God of heaven come down to man. God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you, Father in the highest heaven. Glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving belong to you. Holy Spirit, eternal Spirit of the Father and the Son, we praise you. Triune God, three in one and one in three. We bow before you as creatures made of ash and dust, even as Abraham prayed, so we come before you, dependent upon you, asking for your grace. Show it to us, Lord. Infuse us with your grace. Impart us with the righteousness of your beloved Son, as you have done for us through faith, and also empower us by your Spirit to grow and to change and to be transformed into the image of your beloved Son. Amen. I know a pastor, he loves fishing. He says he'll even fish in a pothole. <laughs> Once, if, if it has rained and you see this muddy pool, you'll even go and try and fish there. Uh, a guy in our church, Rian, the same, Rian uh, loves fishing, he told me. Uh, rivers, dams, fresh water, seawater, off the beach, off the rocks, deep sea fishing off a boat, any time, anywhere he'll fish. And some people are like that when it, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to fishing for men, fishing for Jesus, Jesus sending them out as fishers of men. It's like they're born to be evangelists. Uh, George Whitfield. And John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, great names in history. Today, Ray Comfort, a great evangelist. I think of two friends of mine, um, evangelists. One of them in particular, just the way he thinks about life is all evangelism. I remember uh, driving with him in East London. And when he saw just a curb, he just saw a pavement the sidewalk and he said that'll be a nice place to do open-air preaching or driving by a village he said I wonder I wonder how we can maybe we should come and evangelize here and another of my friends he can't sit still for two and a half hours preparing a sermon because he wants to go out into the streets evangelizing I think these are the kinds of people we read about in Ephesians 4 verse 11 where it speaks of evangelists and not everyone is like that. Not everyone has the gift of an evangelist. But every one of us should, in some place, in some manner, we should try and win people for Jesus. We should fish for people, fish for souls, find the lost and bring them to Christ. Fishing for Jesus. 
And this is what Luke 5 teaches us. So let us read verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your net, nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Number one, if we're going to fish for Jesus, fish for people in order to bring them to Jesus, number one, preach the word. These are the commands we get from this passage. Preach the word. That's in verse 1 to 3. When my dad was a young man, he told me the story. He says when he was a young man, he went into a shop just to look at some suits, into a, clo um, a clothing store, to look for suits. And he just wanted to browse, and he decided in advance, I'm not going to buy anything today. And as he walked into the shop, the Indian salesman told him, I'm going to sell you two suits today. And my dad says, and he did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people, they, they got the gift of the gab. They know how to talk. They might even motivate you by the way, way they talk, and they might even manipulate people in the way they talk. And some would even do that when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to religion. Like the prosperity gospel, they they so smooth and so eloquent and so sly, these prosperity preachers, they can manipulate people into giving them money for, as they say, quote-unquote, the ministry. Or people even with altar calls, they can manipulate you by asking you to come forward. Come forward if you want to receive Jesus, come forward. And the music keeps on playing and they play on your emotions and they can get you to come forward and pray the sinner's prayer. But, but our smartest words, clever words, can never bring people into God's kingdom. It can never change someone's heart. So what we need is we need God's word. We must preach God's word so that men's faith will not rest in the, in the wisdom of other people, but in the power of God, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. We need to preach Christ and him crucified. Jesus himself preached the word. In verse 1, it says that the crowd was gathered. They wanted to hear the word of God. Verse 3, Jesus uh, sat down in the boat and he started teaching people. 
So we know he was teaching them the word. Mark 2 verse 2, he was preaching the word. And then we know Jesus himself is the word, as John 1 tells us. So Jesus, Jesus is the great fisher of men. He's the great fisher of men and he catches men for his kingdom. And he catches them through the disciples also whom he sends out. And when he was on earth, he himself preached as a great fisher of men. Like Matthew 13, 47 says, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. And Jesus obviously is the great fisher. Now in Luke 5, we see not only how Jesus calls men to be fishers of men. He not only calls these disciples, but we see Jesus himself catching these disciples. Jesus in this passage is the fisher of men. He's catching Peter and James and John and Andrew and the other people who, to whom he is preaching the word. So Jesus, uh, Peter, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they're the first that is caught in the net of the kingdom when Jesus comes, when he calls his disciples. Now, actually, they had already, they had already met Jesus in John chapter 1, but this is now formal. This is a formal calling as disciples, to be followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew 4 and in Mark 1, those passages tell us that Jesus called them at the Sea of Galilee, or, or the uh, Lake of Gennesaret, as it's called here. But Luke 5 tells you how this happened. It explains what happened that day when Jesus called them. Matthew and Mark just tell you, tell you Jesus did call them while they were at the sea. But here it explains the detail. So what happened was this. Here you have the crowds, verse 1. They're gathering around Jesus. They want to hear the word of God. And people are amazed at the teaching of Jesus. They're amazed at how simple his teaching is, how plain, how, how clear people can understand this and how powerful his preaching is, as we read in other passages. And even in Luke chapter 4, we saw that. So how's he going to prevent or how's he going to stop the people from trampling him because they're all crowding around him? And the way he's going to do this is verse 2. He sees these two boats by the lake and the boats belong... Most probably to Peter and Andrew, one boat that we know from the passage. Uh, Peter is called Simon here. And then the other boat must probably belong to James and John. And they're busy washing their nets and even fixing their nets, according, according to Mark 1, mending the nets. Uh, because in the nets, the nets can tear and you want to fix those uh, problems in your net. And then cleaning the nets, it's, uh, washing the nets, verse 2, because... You'll get dead fish in it and sticks and uh, maybe shells from the lake or maybe even some of the bait will still be in the net or seagrass or whatever else. So they're cleaning these nets and then Jesus tells Simon, Peter, can I get into your boat please? Please just push the boat a little bit into the water so, I can, so I'm not overwhelmed by these crowds. And then obviously uh, a voice will carry, sound carries over water better than it does over land. And so this happens, verse 3, and then Jesus goes and sits in the boat, says verse 3, to teach the people. Now the reason he doesn't stand is obviously because otherwise the boat might tip while he's preaching. But another reason is that's what rabbis did. A Jewish rabbi would sit when he teaches the word, as in chapter 4 verse 20. So what lessons do we learn from these first three verses? I think the first lesson is use the Bible when you share the gospel. 
Jesus preached the word. It says in verse 1. So use scripture. Remember, your and my words can change no one. My, my words, your words, we cannot change someone's hearts. But God's word in the gospel, that is the power of God by which he saves. Like Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Or Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing, and what we hear is the word of Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 1.18 speaks of the word of the cross, that is the power of God to save us. 1 Peter 1 verse 23, it says we are born of incorruptible seed. And then verse 25, or it says of the word of God, verse 25, and this word is the gospel. So that's the word we must bring, God's words, not our own. So I think the point here is apologetics. Apologetics simply means when people defend the faith. So we defend the Christian faith. Uh, we debate atheists or Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims. But apologetics, you can never change someone's heart merely through apologetics. That's not enough. It's not enough just to come with apologetics if you don't include the gospel. That's what Ray Comfort recently said about Ravi Zacharias with all the scandal around Ravi Zacharias. But Ray Comfort said what bothered him is that Ravi Zacharias, often it was just intellectual arguments. And it wasn't a strong teaching of the gospel, a strong teaching of preaching, warning people against God's judgment, giving them the good news of Christ. So you can't trust in apologetics and your, your cleverness, your own intellect to, to just pin someone down, to pin your opponent to the ground. But we should trust in God, the Spirit of God through the Gospel. Like my father, I remember him and I went out a few years ago, actually a number of years ago, we went out into the streets evangelizing and we came across an atheist and the atheist wanted to debate and I used some strong arguments to prove to him that he's wrong and that God does exist and my father just nudged me um, with his elbow in the ribs. He nudged me and said, get to the Gospel, get to the Gospel. Because he understood the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not my smart and clever arguments. Number two, trust in Jesus, verse 4 to 7. I remember when I was a student, one of my lecturers told us a story about a student preacher. The student preacher was asked to preach at a church and he walked up the pulpit stairs uh, very chuffed with himself that he's now going to preach the word. And well, the, the sermon went really went badly, it went poorly. And then he, his head hung as he came down the pulpit stairs. And then an old man came to him after the sermon and said, If you went up those stairs the way you came down those stairs, humbled, you would have gone down the stairs the way you went up the stairs. In other words, with uh, boldness. So the point I'm trying to make is that there should be a humble dependence upon Jesus, a humble dependence on him, and not think, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to tie up this Muslim or this Jehovah's Witness or this atheist or whatever other unbeliever. I'm just going to tie him up with some good arguments and and beat him. I remember hearing a story quite recently on YouTube it was Vodi Buckham telling of how when he was a young Christian, 
he got into a debate with the Jehovah's Witness. He didn't know who these guys were, but he knew that something's not right. And then someone said, those are the Jehovah's Witnesses. So he went, and for three days he just studied everything these guys believe in. He told them to come back, and they did. And he said, I just pinned them down with my arguments, like a tied-up goat, almost like he slaughtered them with his good reasoning. And then he says, in hindsight, you know, I won an argument, but I didn't win a soul. So if we're not humble, and if we don't come in humble dependence and humble trust in Jesus and humble dependence upon the Spirit, even the best arguments will not help us. And so even a pastor, even a preacher, a preacher, even a preacher who preaches the word purely, yes, even that preacher needs to depend upon the Spirit alone and not on himself, not even trust in your good sermon preparation. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, The outstanding temptation, the besetting sin of every preacher, myself included, is that after you've prepared your sermons, you feel that all is well. You have your two sermons ready for Sunday. Well, that is all right. You have your notes. You can speak. You can deliver your message. But that is not preaching. That can be utterly useless. Oh, it may be entertaining. There may be a certain amount of intellectual stimulus and profit in it, but that is not preaching. Preaching is in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And a man has to realize, after he has prepared his sermons, however perfectly he may have done so, all is waste and useless unless the power of the Spirit comes upon it and upon him. He must pray for that. Yes, but not only he, those who listen must also pray for that. How many people pray before they go to a service that the Spirit of God might come upon the preacher and use him in his message? The hearers as well as the preacher must pray for that. Otherwise they're looking to him and to his message. No, all together must look to God and realize their utter dependence upon the power that God alone can give. End quote. And Luke tells us, Luke actually shows us how Peter was at fault in this very principle. Because when Jesus told Peter, cast your net into the deep waters, Peter didn't immediately say, yes, of course, Lord. No, it's like Peter questioned Jesus. Peter questioned Jesus' knowledge of fishing. It's like, uh, Jesus, it's as if Peter was saying in his heart and mind, you know, Master, I respect you, but now's not really the time of day for fishing. Uh, because if it's the sun comes out, the fish just hide in the deep, cool waters. That's where they swim. The right time to fish is exactly the time we chose. It's at night. That's when they come to the surface. And we were out the whole night fishing. We didn't catch anything. So why in the world would you tell us go into the deep where the fish won't be at this time of the day? But okay, whatever you say, Lord. Whatever you say, Master. <laughs> and the moment we see in verse 6, the moment Peter let down the nets, well, Peter got the catch of his life. The nets were breaking. Verse 7, not enough place in one boat. They need to fill a second boat. The boats begin to sink. And it's not because he used the right bait. It's because he did what Jesus told him. Just like in John 21, it happened again after the resurrection of Jesus. So here it happens now. Same thing. Because he did what Jesus said. Now to apply the principle, if you want to see people converted at work or in your family or your 
circle of friends or in the neighborhood or in the world, we must pray. We must pray to the Lord. But it doesn't stop at praying. We must also be obedient and share the gospel with people. In other words, let the nets down. Let the nets into the deep. Even if it looks to you like this is impossible. There won't be a catch. This is the wrong time, the wrong opportunity, wrong moment. And I've done this for years. We've been fishing all night. No success. Trust the Lord. God can do within a few seconds what will take you and I years to do. Or even decades we cannot accomplish this. And Jesus does this in a few seconds. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones. When God acts, he can do more in a minute than man with his organizing can do in 50 years. End quote. You see that in the book of Acts. On one day, Peter preaches in Acts 2 and 3,000 are converted. Or a, a preacher in the 1700s named William Cooper in Boston. There was a revival in the United States. And in one week, William Cooper saw more of, spiritual, of a spiritual work done in people's hearts than he did in 24 years before that. We don't need better, better methods. We don't need better techniques or programs or organizing or adverts. We need the presence of the risen Christ in our preaching, in our missions, in our evangelism. And how do we get that? We pray often and we believe and we wait on the Lord. Because without Jesus, our best efforts, it is in vain. Even if you're a professional fisherman, it doesn't matter. If you're a professional fisher of me, without Jesus it means nothing. You'll toil all night, you'll catch all night, you'll try all night and take nothing. And if Jesus speaks the word, you'll have more fish than you've ever seen, more converts than you've ever dreamed of. You'll need extra hands to help you. Like Peter in verse 7, he signaled to his partners. His partners are James and John according to verse 10. You'll need extra help. You'll, that's why Jesus tells us in Luke 10, verse 2, pray for extra laborers. Pray for laborers in this harvest. So what can you do? That is a question. What can you and I do to help? What can you and I do to bring nets full of fish, to bring them in? I think for a start, you can pray for a specific unbeliever's conversion. Pray for his or her conversion Pray for opportunities to share the gospel with people. Pray for our outreach at the shelter on Saturdays at Mess. Join us at the shelter for these outreaches. And then learn, learn. Just sit and learn at first and then later take part. Um, we hope that we'll have the opportunity to start at the, uh, the shelter. There are two of them in Kempton Park. We, we hope to start at the second one. Uh, some more Bible studies to reach lost people for Christ. And then share the gospel with your kids. Share the gospel with your family, with your colleagues, with neighbors. And equip yourself. You say, I don't know how to equip myself. Go onto YouTube and you, you type in Living Waters Ray Comfort. And you'll find plenty of videos that will teach you how to evangelize, how to share the gospel, how to start a conversation with someone. Give someone a tract. Give an unbeliever a good Christian DVD or a good Christian book you can buy from Augustine Bookram. Maybe you don't know how to speak. Start with that. Give them a book. And then maybe share this sermon uh, or other gospel sermons. Just share the link on WhatsApp with friends, with unbelievers. Uh, share it on WhatsApp. Share it on Facebook. Invite unbelievers to church. 
and then show practical ways of practical love to an unbeliever, practical ways of really caring for, for unbelievers. And in that way, you win their respect, and later on you might even have an opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, maybe just share your personal testimony, but work the gospel into it. Say what the gospel is. Jesus who died for sinners and rose from the dead, and you must repent and trust in Christ as your Savior. Support a missionary financially, or maybe become a missionary. Become a pastor, become an evangelist if the Lord calls you to it. And then don't wait to use your spiritual gift. Get involved. Go on a short-term outreach with a team. Uh, we hoping to visit missionaries later on in the year in Limpopo. Go on a short-term outreach. Uh, visit a missionary overseas, even. Go out evangelizing. Get an opportunity, if you really call to the ministry, to preach in your church. I'm going to talk about how do you know you're called later on. So don't lie in the boat and tan. Lie in the sun, right in your boat. You're busy tanning and and the other fishermen are toiling and working, and they call to you, verse 7, we need your help, we need your help, but you you busy tanning, catching a suntan. Don't be like Jonah who ran away when the Lord called him and told him to go and preach, but respond to God's call. Like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Like Paul, when they, when they the in the vision the man said, come over and help us, go, respond. Uh, just pull up your sleeves, roll up your sleeves and help. And in all of this, we need to rely on Christ. We need to rely on Jesus to send the fish, to send sinners, to save sinners. Don't trust in your own techniques. Verse 6 tells us, just throw the nets on the other side. Trust in Jesus. Verse 5, 5 and 6. If God doesn't draw people to his son, we cannot be saved. Without Christ, you can do nothing. You need the help of the Spirit. He's like the wind that blows where he wishes. He's sovereign. And so if Jesus does come and where Jesus works, the boats will sink. We won't know. We will not even know how we're going to disciple all these people. But the Lord who converted them, the Lord who saved these people, He'll give us the wisdom. He'll give us the strength to disciple them. Number three. If we're going to be fishers for Jesus, fishers of men, then we, we must be changed. Be changed. That's verse 8 to 10. So just like these fishermen, they were cleaning their nets, they were mending their nets before they go out for the next catch. Uh, the same, the Lord needs to cleanse us. He needs to restore us. He needs to change us before He can use us in His service to catch others. Uh, that's what He did with Peter. So when Peter saw the great catch in verse 8, he fell at Jesus' feet right there in the boat, still in the deeps, he fell down at Jesus' knees, verse 8 tells us, and he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You, you would have thought Peter would be excited. Look at all the fish. But now he asked Jesus to depart from him. You would have thought Peter would have said to Jesus, let's go into business together. We can start a business. But now he realizes Jesus is not only the master of verse 5, he's the Lord of verse 8. He's the Lord who controls all the fish of the sea. He does what he pleases in heaven, on earth, in the sea, and in all their deeps. Psalm 135, verse 6. The other disciples too, in verse 9, they're just astonished. Verse 10, James and John, they're astonished at the catch. And that's why Peter responds like Israel did. 
When God spoke on Mount Sinai, they ran away. Don't let God speak. Or like Isaiah, woe to me. I'm a man of uncleanness. Woe to me, Peter the Savior. Woe to me. I depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. How can I stand? It's like he's saying, how can I, a sinner, be in the presence of the most holy God? Peter was ashamed like someone who, who hasn't got any clothes on. You'll feel embarrassed. He was ashamed like someone who has filthy clothes on and suddenly you come into the light out of the shadows. So that's why he says, please, would you rather just go away, Lord? Verse 8. You see, that, that conviction of sin was necessary before Jesus could use the disciples. They needed to understand who Jesus is. They needed to understand who they are. And so until they, until they realized their need for Jesus, they would have been useless. They, they couldn't say to other sinners, you need Jesus, because they themselves don't see their need for Jesus. So that's why this was necessary. They had to see their own need for Jesus first. And that's what all, all of us need. We don't need to realize, oh, I need to see my full potential. I need to discover that. No, you don't need to discover anything of the sort. You need to have a great vision of Jesus. You and I need a great vision of Jesus and his sovereign power. We need to understand who Jesus is. We need to understand that we need Jesus. Do you see it? Or don't you see it? And if you don't see it, what you need is a good dose of the Ten Commandments. You need to see how lost you are, that you have worshipped other gods. You have exalted other things above God. You need to see that you have worshipped a false god. And that happens every time people say silly things like, a god of love won't send people to hell forever. That is a false god. That is your own image of God. You and I, we take God's name in vain. If you haven't cursed God's name, at least you, you've called yourself a Christian and not lived like one. Or maybe you've made promises in Jesus' name that you haven't kept, like I promised to take you till death to his part. You haven't worshipped God in the way that he has commanded. You haven't honoured your parents. You haven't respected your parents. You, haven't, you didn't obey your parents always. Maybe even neglected your, your aged parents in an old age home somewhere. You've been angry at someone. Maybe you haven't killed someone, but you've hated people. You've wanted them out of your life. You've been sexually immoral, if not indeed, definitely in thought. You've taken what didn't belong to you, even if it's only the time of your employer. You've stolen time and worked seven hours, but taken, taken pay for eight hours. Or you've told lies. You've been dishonest. You've coveted. You haven't been thankful for what the Lord has given you, but you've coveted someone else's stuff. And so you must realize, I hope you see, that without Jesus you are hopeless. You are lost. You are a sinner. You deserve God's judgment. Your only hope is Jesus. See that Jesus died for you. See that Jesus died on the cross and took the punishment for sinners. See that he was buried. He rose bodily from the grave on the third day. See that Jesus alone can save you. Jesus alone took the punishment for sinners for our law breaking. So if you want to prevent, if you want to stop and say, I don't want to be caught by the sharks of sin and hell. Then you need to swim to the great fisher of men. And then he will comfort you as he did for Peter in verse 10. Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. It's as if Jesus said, I know you, I know you, you fear the Holy One. But I haven't come to destroy. I've come to save. 
and because you believe in me, Peter, and because you obey me, I will use you to catch men. And the Greek word there for catch literally means to, uh, means to catch alive. To catch alive, that's important because the gospel is not a trap. The gospel is not a trap because we just want to win people to our church and make up the numbers. The gospel is not like we like the Jehovah's Witnesses who want to score points for, for eternal life. Now we've scored enough points. So I want to evangelize. I want to tell people about Jesus that, that goes on to the record. God will see that and I'll score points. We're not the prosperity gospel who want to trap you because we really want your money. No, we don't. The gospel is to help you to come out of the danger zone, to come to the net of the kingdom, the fishing net of the kingdom, so that you can enter the kingdom and have eternal life in Christ. And the faithful evangelist will do this. The faithful evangelist is like, is like a fisherman who wants to help these marine animals out of this, this oil-polluted ocean. And he wants to take you to clean water where you can live and breathe and have life. Number four, follow the master. That's in verse 11. So if we're going to be fishing for Jesus, follow the master. So you know the, the little fish symbol, the Christian symbol, a fish? Uh, many of you know that it comes from actually a confession of faith. Jesus, Christ, God's Son, is Savior. Now, in Greek, you would say, Jesus, Christus, Theu, Wios, Suter. And if you take the first letter, that is, Jesus Christ, God's Son, is Savior. Um, if you translate that. If you take the first letter of every Greek word there, it spells the word, Ichthus, Jesus, I, Christus, Theos, Wiu, which is son, you, and then Suater means savior, S, Ichthus, and Ichthus means fish. So when Christians in the early church, in time of persecution, you go into a town, you want to know where the Christians are, then in the marketplace you'll see another person and you'll just draw in the sand with your foot, you'll just draw a half a circle. And then if the other person is Christ a Christian, he will draw from the other side and complete. So then it will be a fish. So you draw the half, the other person draws the other half of, half of the fish, and then you know this is a Christian. You even saw this fish in the Christian TV series, The Chosen. When the episode starts, you see these fish, and then they swim in a circle, and then one fish turns around, and he, and he turns turquoise. Uh, so he, he's not grey anymore, he's turquoise and then he swims upstream, he swims in the other direction. And then he touches another fish and that fish turns around, swims in the other direction. So they become followers of Jesus. Are you a follower of Jesus? Well, if you are, then you must be like these disciples. They were willing to leave everything to follow Jesus. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him because they realized here's something that is worth more than the catch and that is Jesus, it's the great fisherman he's worth more than anything the world can give you that is why you leave everything if you follow Jesus you leave family if you must you leave riches if you must like in 528 
we see Matthew, Levi, he left everything and followed Jesus. I don't know, is, is the Lord perhaps calling you in that way? So you're a Christian already. Maybe the Lord is calling you to, to give yourself full time as a gospel preacher. So when are you going to do it? If the Lord is calling you, when are you going to do it? When are you going to leave the catch? When are you going to leave the nets? When are you going to leave the business and follow Jesus? Bodhi Bakum says, quote, If you are saying that God is calling you, what are you waiting for? Men are fighting and dying while you twiddle your thumbs to figure out whether or not you are ready to take up a weapon and man a post. Enough already. Are you in or are you not? Because the stakes are too high to wait for you. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He is coming. Don't let him find you navel-gazing to figure out whether or not you're going to respond to his call. End quote. How do you know whether the Lord is calling you or not? I think you need to focus on the, the objective and not the subjective. For 10 years, the first 10 years of my minister, uh, ministry as a pastor, I, I doubted, I don't know, how do I know I'm called? I had some subjective experience, but... How do I know I'm really called? And then a, a preacher came to some conference I attended and this preacher gave four objective tests to know that you're called. They're all from Scripture. Do you desire to be a pastor or a missionary or whatever? Do you desire it? 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. Do you have the gift of teaching? 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. Do you have the moral qualities of a spiritual leader? 1 Timothy 3, verse 3 to 7. And then finally, do the other elders confirm it and say, yes, it's obvious, we can see. You have these gifts and you have the calling. And I'm not throwing away the subjective, but I'm saying don't build your calling on the subjective. Build it on the objective truth of God's word. And in the subjective as a bonus, if the Lord really lays it down hard on you and you know He has called you to the ministry. So give yourself to the ministry. If you truly call to the ministry, give yourself. Follow Jesus Christ, first as a Christian and then as a preacher, then as a fisher of men. And you give your whole life to this, to find the lost and to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be like John Harper. John Harper was a preacher in Scotland in the 1800s. He was converted when he was 14 years old and then he started evangelizing the streets at 17, he started becoming a, he became a street preacher. And then later on in his life, he, he became a pastor in a church. And then he planted his own church. And that church grew in 13 years from 25 members to more than 500 members. And eventually, John Harper and his six-year-old girl. Actually, John Harper first, he went to Moody Church in Chicago. Um, he sailed there on a ship. They wanted him to preach and they really enjoyed the series of meetings. He went back home. And then later on, a few years later, they wanted him to come back and preach again. And he did. And he got onto the Titanic. And as you know, the Titanic sank. His six-year-old girl was with him. She survived. But as he was in the icy waters clinging to some piece of driftwood, there was another man. And the, the wave, it's like the sea just pushed him toward this man, and he said, Man, are you saved? And the man said, No. And he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then the 
the water separated them again. And then later on, the wave pushed him toward the man. He said, are you now saved? Have you believed? And the man said, no. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then John Harper sank. He lost grip. He let, couldn't hold on to the driftwood anymore and he drowned. And that man called on the Lord Jesus as his saviour and he became a Christian. And a few months later in Canada, this man stood up in a church and he testified. He gave his testimony, he told the story I just did. And then he said, I was John Harper's last convert. And may people say on the final day when Jesus returns, I have eternal life because there was a faithful Christian in Kempton Park who shared the gospel with me. I'm here today, a saved man or woman, because there was a church in Kempton Park, week in and week out, they preached the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen your people here this morning and make us fishers of men. Make us faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. That sinners would turn to the Lord of glory, the God of grace, the God of our salvation, and be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.